If we were to say, what is the gospel? Well, we could sum it up in one word. The gospel in one word is this, Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is both the source and goal for the Christian life simultaneously. But if you wanted to expand that a little bit and say, what is the gospel? Uh, maybe in a little, bit, a little bit more detail, there's lots of different ways you could slice and dice that answer, lots of, and I'm sure they're all correct. The way that I have chosen to dissect it for this series is something like this. The gospel is the good news of Jesus who has come to, and then four things, show us God's love, save us from sin, bring us peace, and unite us with God. So these are the four weeks of the month of December. So last week we talked about how Jesus was and is God's love towards us. And this week we're talking about how Jesus came to save us from sin. Years ago, uh, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to spend some time with a, a lady named Jeannie Mayo. She's a legendary youth pastor, and she has this program where once a year she'll have some other youth pastors from around the nation come to be with her at her house and just sort of teach us what it means to be a good youth pastor. So it was super fun. She's one of the most creative ladies in the world, and she would also take us on these different field trips around Atlanta. So we would, you know, to try to teach us little lessons. And so she, we would all, all these youth pastors that showed up, we all sat in this little bus. She had her very own short bus. So cool. So we all hopped in the short bus, and she would drive us to wherever. Well, one day, uh, we, she took us to a uh, cemetery. We were talking about the legacy that we want to leave behind. So when she took us to the cemetery, the job she had for us, she talked to us for a few minutes, and then she said, she said, what I want you to do is I want you to walk around and read the inscriptions on the tombstones, and I want you to think about what you want to leave behind. And so we all did that, and it was a, a real powerful time for a lot of us. But, but I remember seeing this one grave, and it really made an impact on me that I pulled out my journal, and I wrote this down uh, years ago, and I've always thought about it, but this is something that I saw on one of the tombstones in Atlanta. Samantha Williams died because Adam sinned, lived because Christ died. Some of y'all are thinking, I want that on my tombstone, right? <laughs> I'm sure Samantha Harris is willing to share. Uh, yeah, but died because Adam sinned and lives because Christ died. And so, of course, in one sense, that's an encouraging thing to say when someone has passed on that, you know, we're talking about eternal life. But in those two phrases, died because Adam sinned, lives because Christ died, you may not realize this, but those are packed with theological concepts that are incredibly important uh, for us. And so as we talk about it's, all about, it's all about sin and salvation, right? That's the idea, sin and salvation. And so we're going to talk about those two concepts this morning. And just to warn you that uh, we at this church, um, I can say for me as a pastor, and I know I speak on behalf of the pastoral team here, is that we love it when you guys come into this room and we can make you laugh it just does our hearts good. And we love when it, you just have a great time at church and you're encouraged at church. That's so amazing uh, to us. But more importantly than even that is, is we believe that we have a God-given responsibility to teach you. And so with that may come some more, some um, theologically thoughtful 
concepts than you may be accustomed to. And that's not just so that we can impress you with how big our frontal lobes are. Uh, it's, it's because we think, we think that you need to know the truth. And we believe that the truth will set you free. So I want you to buckle up, because what we're going to do today is we're going to dive deep for a few minutes and talk about some important concepts when it comes to God. And then we're going to come up to the surface, come up for air, and make it very practical for your life. But let's do both of those things together. Can you do that with me? Okay, so this morning, uh, all of our thinking is going to be centered around or focused on these five questions. Here's the five questions. Number one, what is sin? We're talking about sin. What, what, is, what is that sin? Number two, what is salvation? Right? How, in what way are we saved from sin? What, what is salvation? Three, how are we saved from sin? What's the, uh, what's the um, method by which we're saved from sin. Four, why is the incarnation important? Does the incarnation have a part to play in this kind of thinking? And lastly, five, what are the implications for us today? Okay, number one, write it down if you're taking notes. What is sin? Uh, growing up for me, I had a great childhood. And one thing that I remember about my childhood is my dad was a deer and elk hunter. Uh, and he would use a, a bow, bow hunter. Uh, for those of you, uh, for those of us who are not into hunting, bows and arrows. He and so he, he would he would use a bow. And what he would tell me as a kid, I don't know if this is the whole truth, but I believed him, and I still agree to this day that you use a bow because it's more fair to the deer. He said, "A gun is cheating." I'm like if. If you're going to get all caveman out there pooping in the woods, well, then you should have to use caveman tools. They, they didn't have any, like, a precision scope, you know, that could shoot the wings off a fly at 400 yards. That's cheating. I mean, you might as well just bring your plane and drop bombs out there or something. Jeez. <laughs> Ain't that right, Dad? Dad's saying, like, don't involve me, son. <laughs> I'm going to get email for that. I'll show you. I'll share my email with you. Uh, I didn't know nothing about hunting. I'm just kidding. Like, the most, uh, the most hunting I ever did was duck hunt on Nintendo. And even that is kind of, like, barbaric. <laughs> Poor ducks. But my dad took his archery skill very seriously. And so I remember when I was a kid, me and Holly, we would go out. And my dad, he set up these big bales of hay in the backyard. And he would set up these targets. And he'd go on the far end of the yard and practice his archery skills in order to prepare for hunting. And so you might be thinking, well, what in the world does that have to do with sin? Okay, well, the word sin, the English word sin that we... That we um, say in the English language was translated from two, primarily two different terms that are both archery terms. In fact, the, the Hebrew is this, um, uh, chita, and then in the Greek, it's hamartia. It's a, it's a Hebrew and Greek equivalent. It's the same thing. And in both cases, it, it means essentially this. So sin, to miss the bullseye, to be off course, to not, or we could say, to not live the way we were made to live, whether by commission or omission. 
So it's either, it could either be by something we do or by something that we fail to do. Of course, when people think about sin, they tend to think about the real obvious stuff, don't you? You think about lying and cheating and stealing. And while it's true that those are certainly missing the mark of God's ideal for us, we can also miss the ideal of God's uh, plan for our lives, not by what we do, but also by what we fail to do. So, for example, we believe as Christian people that God has told us and called us to take care of the poor. And so you might be thinking, yeah, that's what my taxes are for. No, you personally are supposed to take care of the poor, right? And so if, if, um, if you fail to do that, it's, um, it's also in the same way, it's missing the mark of what God has called you to do. And so, so it, what's interesting about this archery term, sin, to miss the mark, is while it's an archery term, it's also used in the Bible, and it's used in the Bible uh, quite often in the context of relationships. And I think that's interesting because archery and relationships are not usually talked about in the same sentence. And so how, is, how are we missing the mark relationally? Well, for the Christ follower, we all believe that that the goal of every relationship, be it your relationship with God, be it your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship with strangers, is, in a word, Christ-likeness. That's the goal, to act like Christ acted, right? And so we could say, well, what is that? Well, it could be summed up in one word, right? Love. God's essence is love. And so we're always aiming relationally for the perfect bullseye, which is love. And when we miss that bullseye relationally, our relationships suffer. Perhaps you've noticed that. When you, if you, if you miss the bullseye of forgiveness in your marriage, your marriage suffers. Right? If, you, if you miss the bullseye of generosity towards your children, then your relationship suffers. You might even be able to say it like this. Sin separates relationships. Sin separates relationships. And we all actually know that, right? I bet, I bet you can think of all kinds of people that maybe used to be in your life, but for some reason or another, that relationship was violently severed. And I can guarantee you, at the center of that severing of that relationship was, in some sense, sin. In fact, if I, was to, if I was to bring a couple recently divorced and sit them down in my office and we were to really peel the onion of what it was that caused them to get a divorce, you know what we would find? Sin. Are you, are you sure, Pastor David? No, I'm not sure. I'm positive. It could, it could be something super obvious, right? The sin of, of verbal abuse, or it could be the sin of infidelity, but it could be something a little more subtle also. It could be the sin to miss the mark through um, bitterness, right? Pride, or of course the all-encompassing selfishness, almost always. So sin separates relationships. So here's my question for you. Do you sin? I know some of the religious-minded folk in the room might want to say, well, I did, but that was B.C. That's all B.C., before Christ, B.C. If you think all of your sin is B.C., well, that's the sin of pride, and you're in big trouble, mister. (laughs) 
Everybody sins. Even, even Pastor Marshall? Yeah, even Pastor Marshall. Even my sweet granny who can do no wrong? Yes, even my granny sins. We all sin. Like, I think we, I think we live in a society with such fragile egos, you know what I mean? Where you can never accuse anybody of anything. You can't, ever, you can't even say the truth about, are you saying that I'm a sinner? You can't say that I'm a sinner. Who are you to say? that? Like, that's what's so great about the gospel. Is with, with the gospel, the gospel allows us to face reality. It, it allows us to face the reality of who God is, and it allows to fa- us to face the reality of who we are. We are all people who miss the mark all the time. Uh, chances are you will miss the mark in some sense, in some way, today. Some of you will miss the mark before service is over. We all miss the mark all the time. And that's what sin is. Here's the good news. Are you ready? God loves sinners. God came for sinners. God died for sinners. But just understand this, that we all sin, and sin separates relationships. Okay? Uh, Isaiah chapter 59. I know I had to turn to Hebrews. Just stay there, and I'll read these two verses uh, to you. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. Listen to this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your, listen to this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have, how did that happen? Your sins have hidden his face from you. Isn't that interesting? So we understand this is a biblical reality that our sin separates us from God. That's the, that's the, um, truth that we see throughout the Bible, but I need you to understand how that happens. It happens like this. We run from God. God doesn't run from us. And the difference is all important. In fact, you can see this over and over and over. This is the story of the Bible. Think about the initial sin, right? The initial severing of relationship in the garden. Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the apple And all of a sudden, they realize they've been buck naked this entire time, right? They become self-aware and self-conscious. And so what do they do? They hide. And what does God do as a result? God pursues them. They run away, and God pursues them. One generation later, you think uh, Cain murders his brother Abel. The relationship is severed. Cain, what does he do? Runs. God does what? Pursues him. The nation of Israel, they come and they, they turn their back on God, but God still pursues them and he even gives them laws to try to protect them from killing themselves and each other. But no, but no, we prefer the golden calf. Right? So, so we turn our back on God and God does what in response? pursues us. He even gives us judges and prophets to try to communicate, but still we turn away. Till ultimately Jesus, or God pursues us in person through Jesus, the ultimate pursuit. And how do we respond? We kill him. We literally kill him, right? And you would think, well, man, then he's raised from the dead. That's what you don't want to happen. You don't want your skeletons to be raised. You want them to stay in the closet. 
But no, we kill, we kill Jesus and he comes. And so certainly at that point, he's going to be met. That's enough chances, right? But even then, he still comes and pursues us. So humanity, in our sin, we run away from God and God still pursues us. The cross is God saying that he loves us too much to let sin be the final word in our story. So, so have, have you got that? Have you got that? Sin is to miss the mark and it severs relationships. That is, we could say that's one of the primary problems that the Christian faith aims to solve, the problem of sin and how through our sin, our relationship with God becomes severed. Not because he's running from us, but because just like it says in Isaiah, it hides his face. Something changes with us. It hides we, it, he becomes hidden from our uh, eyes. And so that brings us to number two. What is salvation? And this will be quick. Salvation, again, remember the context, sin separating relationships. We might say it something like this. Salvation is reconciliation. Being reunited with the one we are estranged from. Or in the Christian context in particular, we would say it like this. Salvation is God calling us home. Like in the story of the prodigal son returning to his father. So it's, it's, the, it's sin, the severance of sin. Salvation is that relationship being mended back together. Three, how does God save us? So I, li- I like this one um, because... Uh, theologians or Bible scholars back in the day when they were translating the original English Bible, they made a word up. I didn't even know you could do that. Did you know you could just make a word up? Hangry. I'm so hungry, I'm angry. Hangry. So they were wanting to translate a biblical concept from the Hebrew and they had no word for it. So they're thinking, what are we going to do? So they invent a word. I'm being dead serious. This is the origin of this word is Bible scholars in the English language. And what is that word? This is the word. Atonement. It's a made-up word. Uh, In fact, look look at this. Atonement may be the only theological word with English origin. Only one. The rest of them are like from the Latin, from the Greek. You know how we always say, oh, it's from, from the Latin word, blah. What is this from the Latin? Anything? Is it from the French? Acto may? Nope. We made it up. The English Bible translators made up the word because they didn't have a word in the English language to convey what they were wanting to convey. So it brings the question, like, if you're going to make up a word, how would you go about doing that? How do you decide on the phrases? How do you decide on what, you know, where to put what letters? Well, the way that they came up with this word and uh, the way that I'm hoping you will read it from now on is this, at one mint. At one mint. That's how they came up with the word. At one mint. Coming together, back together as one, at one meant the atonement. Uh, and so the word they're wanting to translate is a beautiful Hebrew word, and it's this, kapur. Perhaps you've heard uh, the word kapur, have you? Maybe in the Jewish holiday, what? Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day, and Kippur, 
Atonement. So Yom Kippur is literally the Day of Atonement. And Kippur, the word they were wanting to translate, that we translate into atonement, the meaning is this, to cover over, to wipe away, to cleanse, to forgive. To cover over, to wipe away, to cleanse, to forgive. I think what's cool about this uh, word that we translate into atonement, Kapoor, is it was originally a farming word where uh, what it was describing is when a farmer would come and they would put a, put a little seed in the ground and cover it over with soil. Cover it over with soil so that new life can begin. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that that's what they would choose when they're describing how God covers us, that they would use a word that describes him covering over so that new life can grow? So that's the idea of the atonement. And there are a lot of um, atonement theories. Uh, You ever wonder why they call them atonement theories? It's because they're theories. What's a theory? A theory is like I had an idea on how something might or might not work. Right? So there's lots of atonement theories uh, in the Christian um, community. If you don't know this, they can range anywhere from helpful and enlightening to uh, a tremendous waste of time and a great way to ruin a holiday. You know, arguing with your uncle over atonement theories. My, my um, personal advice to you is this, when it comes to theology, I love theology. My advice is this, don't get too bogged down in technical details if they have no bearing on how you're actually gonna live your life. Like, don't, don't worry about it too much. You can worry about things up to the point where it's a blessing, but if you've gone to the place where you're creating new ways to divide you and your brothers and sisters, you've gone too far. In fact, it's C.S. Lewis, um, who I quote too much, but he's just, he's just so formative to me and how I understand cr- the Christian faith. He says this when talking about atonement theories, and it's kind of long. I'm just going to warn you. I tried to cut it down. I can't. It's too good. It's four slides. He says this. Oh, this is his seminal work, Mere Christianity, who many of you have read. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. We've talked about that. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. Listen to this. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. So they've got lots of different opinions on how it works, but what we agree on is that it does in fact work. I will tell you what I think it's like. All sensible people know that if you are tired and hungry, a meal will do you good. But the modern theory of nourishment, all about the vitamins and proteins, is a different thing. People ate their dinners and felt better long before the theory of vitamins was ever heard of. And if the theory of vitamins is someday abandoned, they will go on eating their dinners just the same. Theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. I think they would probably admit that no explanation will ever be quite adequate to the reality. You may ask, what good is it to us if we, can't, uh, if we do not understand it? But that is easily answered. Lastly, a man can eat his dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. Indeed, he certainly would not know how it works until he has accepted it. Right? So 
here, here's my overarching point, that, that there's so many, when, it, when we're talking about the atonement, this is one of the places where Christians start to stab and poke each other. I, I would encourage you, as my church family, to, to, to say this. We know that through Jesus Christ, we are put right with God. We know that. And at, at one minute. And so just be at peace with that. Through the beautiful death of Jesus Christ, we are made right with God. That's how God saves us. Atonement at one minute. Coming back. Number four, here we go. Uh, why is the incarnation important? Uh, so, God, uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not half God, half man. Right? Like a, like a centaur, you know, half horse, or, or like a merman. Is that a thing? Yeah, a merman, uh, a mer person. No, he was fully God and fully man. Right? And so I want you to think about that in the, uh, I, in the context of at one minute, God and man coming together. And then we have Jesus who in his own body shows us fully God and man coming together. Jesus, in his incarnation, is proving to us once and for all that God and man can coexist. He proves it in his own body. He proves to us that God and man can get along. You guys familiar with the idea of the Trinity, right? And, and the Trinity is the Godhead in the Christian faith. And that we would say that within the Trinity is relationality. So relationality is put on display just in God being who he is. In the same way, we would also say that the reconciliation between God and man is put on display perfectly in the, in the being of Jesus Christ. Just by being there, he shows us at one minute, God and man uh, coming together. And it's kind of a big concept. I know we sort of like reached the end of language in some of these. I made a, another diagram, uh, and, it, and it's this. <laughs> this one's simple. Jesus is simultaneously the ultimate picture of God coming to man. So he's the perfect picture of God's job, right? And at the same time, he's the perfect picture of man surrendering to God. Isn't that amazing? So that he's perfectly modeling both ends of the relationship simultaneously. Right? And so he's showing us this very important, um, important concept. And some of the uh, Bible writers try to put words to it better than I can. So Hebrews chapter 2, I'm sure you found it. It was like 30 minutes ago I told you to turn. You probably gave up 28 minutes ago. Closed the dumb thing already. Okay. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Listen, again, some great theology here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So here, so, so the death of Jesus broke the power of death. 
verse 15. And he freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. See, now because of Jesus, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. So he's saying Jesus came to help mankind. Right, so, so he became what he came to help. Verse 17, for this reason, he had, to, uh, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So notice that he had to become human so that he could be our high priest. And pay attention to that phrase, high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement, that's, he might, might make atonement, atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus covers um, us as our high priest. Uh, and verse 18, because he himself suffered, it's a great verse, because he himself suffered uh, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Such a cool point. Is it because Jesus was tempted, he is able to uniquely help those of us who are tempted. That's amazing. Because when you think God could just perfectly do that regardless, but this scripture is saying that there was something about Jesus becoming human that helps us to be uniquely helped by him. Right, that there, there's something important about the incarnation in a way that allows Jesus to comfort us all the more. Then jump to uh, chapter four. It's like the next page. Uh, chapter four, verse 14. If you're reading along, of course, I'm, I'm in the NIV always. It says uh, this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, so I'm about Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Notice that word choice, empathize. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That's key, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it's amazing here that, that they talk about multiple times, Jesus is our high priest. Uh, and that just means the premier, the highest level of priest. And let me tell you what a priest does. A priest comes with the people to God as a, a human. This is what a priest does. As a human comes with the other humans to God to represent the people. So you can see that what, what it's talking about is Jesus here who comes and he's, he's literally on our side advocating for you and for me. And he can do that uniquely because he's fully God, but he's also fully human. Lastly, number five is this. What are the implications for us today? Okay, so what are, we, what are we supposed to do with all of that? Here's three things I've got for you. One, God gets us. Two, God graces us. Three, God calls us to grace each other. So first off, number one, God gets us. Remember, we just read in Hebrews how, uh, how Jesus is able to empathize with our weakness. So it's not, it's not sympathize 
from a distance, oh, God, that seems, that looks so hard. Ooh, see, poor, poor, little, poor little guy. That looks hard. No, it's not sympathy from a distance. It's empathy. It's that, it's, I feel that. And I, I, I know that because I've been there. So God gets us. Number two, God graces us. Listen, and, and I'm about finished, so if the, one, the band wants to come up or whatever, that's great. Uh, God graces us. Look, I don't know how you have messed up. And to be perfectly frank, like I don't really care all that much. I've told you this before. Your sin is not that interesting. It's not. It's not. We all sin the same handful of ways. You know, every, every pastor, here's the, you think you're going to shock the world with your horrible sin. We heard it four times already this morning. Your sin is not that interesting. It is not. And I think that's, a, that's actually a really great encouragement. Um, here, so here's what I want to say. Your, your sin is not that interesting. And more than that, like, God forgave you 2,000 years ago. You know, so like maybe it's time for you to finally forgive yourself. It may, maybe it's time for you to like dust yourself off and repent, which means to turn the other direction, right? And turn the other direction and, and move forward with your life. Always understanding that, that, that God's grace is there um, for you every step of the way. You know, um, I've got a really great marriage that I brag about all the time with a wonderful lady, Jordan. Um, you know, one way that I could really hurt my relationship with Jordan is that if every time I messed up, I said, well, I don't want to tell Jordan. I don't want Jordan to know what I did. I'm just too ashamed about myself. You know, and she would, you know, she would just get mad anyways. She would just throw something at my head. And my head is giant. So, you know, easy to hit. If I do that enough, I hide enough from her, it would sever the relationship, right? My, hear this, my false beliefs about Jordan could destroy our relationship. So I love this concept in Hebrews that we come to God boldly, right? We come, we come boldly. We're not, oh, he's going to give so mad. No, we come boldly knowing that forgiveness and grace and mercy are not just there if we ask, that they're already there for us. And we just have to wake up to the reality that we have already been forgiven and we have already been graced to live our best life. Amen. Lastly, number three is this. God calls us to grace each other. Uh, First Peter, uh, Peter says this in, in uh, chapter four, verse eight. He says, above all. So Peter, Peter says a lot of great things in this letter. And he's saying, eh, here's the most important thing that I'm about to say. He says, above all, here's what it is. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So for us, as Christian people, our life's mission is to become more Christ-like. That's the goal. Right, I want, I, want to, I want to follow after Jesus as his disciple. And we'll make great progress in that area. At least we should. I, I'm, anyone who's honestly following Jesus will make great progress in becoming more like Jesus. But listen, we will still, we, we will go to heaven still having a long way to go. Could you admit that? There will still be lots of things that we haven't 
got figured out yet. And that's, that's how we're always going to be. And, and I actually believe this. I believe that when we, when we sin, when we miss the mark, it hurts the Father's heart. Now that I'm a dad, I actually get that, right? Because, because the Father wants nothing but the best for us. And so it hurts his heart when he sees when we hurt ourselves and each other. So it does hurt the heart of the Father when we sin. But, but you know, we also, we also wound each other when we sin, don't we? I've been wounded by other people's sin. But you, you know what? You, you'll, you'll be wounded, but you'll also do your fair share of wounding. Right? I've been wounded, and I've done wounding. I've wounded other people too. And so we need something relationally to bridge that gap. Right? And this verse gives us, gives us the key to that. It's, it's what? Love. Love that would cover over sin not just to hide it, but to cover over so that new life can grow. I love, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He calls, um, he, he tells us that we are now in Christ ministers of reconciliation. Don't you love that? Ministers of reconciliation. That everywhere we go, you and me, we're, we're agents of coming together, right? Of course, like this, we're showing people how to come together with God and be joined together with him, but also at one with each other, unity with our brothers and sisters and with the people of the world, that we're ministers of reconciliation everywhere we go. So here's the challenge, and then Pastor Marshall's gonna close uh, the service, we'll pray. But here's the challenge for the week. This week, be on the watch for an opportunity to offer the gift of reconciliation to someone who sins against you. Be on the watch for an opportunity to offer the gift of reconciliation to someone who sins against you. And you might be thinking, oh, God, I hope he's not, talk- he's not talking about so-and-so, is he? I just might be. I might be talking about them. And you might be thinking, yeah, well, yeah, they don't deserve it. Yeah, Jesus could say the same thing about you. You know what I mean? Like, you can say the same thing about all of us. It's not about that. It's about, it, reconciliation is not about the other person. It's about who you are. You are a minister of reconciliation, offering the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God everywhere that we go. So we receive, give. As we receive, so we give uh, to the world.